Hi, and welcome to an episode of the Jet Rails podcast. I'm Robert Rand, your host. Today, I'm joined by Derek from the e-commerce tech.io team, and we're going to be discussing how to choose e-commerce extensions and apps. Basically, whenever it's time for an add-on, an, a module, an app, <laughs> an extension, a plugin, some sort of additional software that you're going to add on top of your e-commerce platform in order to add new features or functionality to make a better user experience or uh, in order to improve the order fulfillment or admin experience or some other facet of your site, um, what that process uh, could potentially look like or should potentially look like more likely. So uh, with no further ado, Derek, uh, would you do the honor of introducing yourself? Hello. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, where to begin? I have been running e-commerce tech.io for about a year now and um, really just wanted to dive into the extensive uh, app ecosystem, especially the Shopify app ecosystem. But um, we, we look at a lot of different tools and technologies and how it's going to affect e-commerce, whether it's a good fit for stores, what kind of stores different tools are a fit for, when people should be thinking about adding them. And then just really thinking about that customer experience and, and what is it going to look like in like, let's say 10 years from now, and what tools are going to get us to, you know, a higher level of performance so we can compete with the big dogs in the market. Very cool. All right. So <laughs> man after my own heart, you know, in essence, uh, people on, on the podcast, you know, listeners have heard me say it many a time that. It takes a village to operate a successful and growing e-commerce site that um, there's going to be lots of tech involved and you've got to really pick winners and you have to, you know, there's a trade-off, I suppose. That's probably a good topic for us to chat a little bit more about today, but there's weight added. There are, you know, security and other considerations as you go. So certainly important to choose wisely. And, um, you know, what are some of, uh, you know, the, those different types of add-ons? Or, you know, maybe we'll take a step backwards. How do some of these add-ons differ? How, how do apps or extensions um, differentiate fr- from each other just at the highest level for someone that's trying to shop? Maybe, you know, <laughs> whether you're a small business um, just breaking into e-commerce as a startup or maybe if you're an enterprise you might, in many cases, be looking at different types of add-on software. Yeah, you've got a few different ways that it, it could work. I'd say you know some things are that one-off purchase that is going to just uh, maybe it's just a tweak to your theme code or um, or some quick fix. I'd say most tools today are SaaS apps that are monthly recurring uh, subscriptions, and the theory behind paying a monthly recurring subscription is that the company behind that is working towards bettering and improving the technology over time, or at the very minimum, at least staying up to date with changes in security functionality and stuff like that. Depending on what kind of app you're using, it could be pulling very sensitive data from your company. And so I think that's kind of another differentiator. Is this app um, intrusive or not intrusive to my business? Um, A lot of apps that plug into like a Shopify into your Shopify store will immediately basically download all of your data. Uh, and they do this uh, usually under the theory, and it's it's usually holds true, that they need that data to better their own app. But you can imagine that even though Shopify vets all of these tools very extensively, uh, there will be some bad actors or just some opportunity for security threats and hacks 
on those companies who sometimes are very early stage startups and aren't that well funded. So you got to think about like, um, yeah, what what is the the end purpose of this app? If it's a if it really is just a one time fix, then it should be a one time purchase. And I do see people doing things like uh, maybe they need an app that helps them update meta fields or something. That should be a one-time fix, but yet the app is charged in the monthly recurring. That's a broken business model, and you want to avoid tools like that. Uh, on the on the flip side, um, you could find tools that are that are very uh, fast growing, and the feature set is changing uh, extensively over time. And you should, in that case, usually be very willing to pay that monthly subscription fee that you're gonna you're gonna find associated with. Yeah, I I think it's interesting that in the Magento ecosystem we're seeing more SaaS companies come about where instead of getting that one-time fix, you're getting more features and functionality bundled with more ongoing support and something that's going to evolve with you a little bit more. Um, but uh, you know, one of the things that I think in all these ecosystems you see with SaaS is that you're adding to your ongoing cost. So the, <laughs> those bills just keep going up as you add one after another uh, you know, apps to your site um, where you're going to have that kind of ongoing billing. Yeah, for the most part, the uh, that should be calculated like from an ROI standpoint. So yeah, costs will go up, but return on that individual app should be relatively easily trackable. Most apps these days are going to affect pretty clear metric, whether it's uh, decreasing customer service inquiries, increasing conversion rate on the website, you know, something that even increases page speed load time has that ancillary effect of, you know, increasing conversion rate. And so think about that metric of like, what is this impacting? And that's how you justify the ROI. But again, you you run into, I think, what, what your specialty and, and knowledge is around, which is, okay, I'm paying $150 a month, or I could pay $1,500 and build it myself. And so, you know, that's just 10 months, you know, equivalent of paying for this. If I'm going to pay for it for the next five years. That's great. But then the question is, okay, well, at $150 a month versus $1,500, for the fifteen hundred, what what's my own maintenance cost going to be for this? Can I do it as well as them? Or and what you're saying is like apps today are changing. They're actually not one off fixes so much as they're evolving and staying up to date with security measures. Which means that monthly fee is actually going to them updating the security patches to them improving the bells and whistles and feature set for you. And so it's it, it can be a really tough decision between building in house versus uh, paying for an app or a partner. But at the end of the day, um, there's a straight cost-benefit analysis that can usually be drawn from. Sure. And you've and you've touched on a little bit of it, um, other challenges that, that go into the mix, because uh, you know if you're going to rely on a lot of different apps, they may conflict. And you can have the same with extensions or plugins that you install on a site. But with apps, often you have a lot less capability or or, um, or access to um, to work through those conflicts to um, to solve it through coding because they're typically it, it's a <laughs> it's a packaged product. Yeah, it's, um, it's not something that you you can uh, go change the source code on. Yeah, and that's why I you know kind of one of those metrics to judge an app on is how willing are they to take your feedback into account. So. In some cases, you might be the beta or alpha customer, and they will basically build what you want for them. In other cases, you're a little guy, and they've got big enterprise clients, and they'll basically never listen to you. And then in other cases, you're maybe like one of a vote. A vote. There's a voting system, and you can see where the features you care about rank up. 
at the end of the day, you know, the app provider should absolutely be taking the feedback of their customers. They can't always build everything that everyone wants. But I have worked closely with apps who have helped me get the features I needed for success. Um, and then the ones that, of course, couldn't provide that for me, you know, I, I'm, I'm very likely to churn or look for a competitor that can do that one thing that I need that they can't do. Uh, you talked about security. I'm going to come back around to that. Uh, maybe in a roundabout way by asking you, you know, who's writing all this software from your perspective, you know, different ecosystems, maybe there's a little bit more of one type of a, a provider versus another, but what are you running into at this point? You like who you said, who's writing the software? Like, yeah, like, you know, are, are you seeing, so I'll give you an example. I know in the WooCommerce ecosystem that the WooCommerce team themselves are writing some of the the extensions. Um, in the Magento ecosystem, you're mostly seeing, uh, you know, perhaps independent um, agencies occasionally write the extensions. And there's a lot of teams, mostly in uh, places like Eastern Europe and Asia, um, that are writing extensive libraries of extensions for the platform. So they might publish, you know, many dozens of, of plugins. I, I know that uh, it's a mixed bag in, in every platform, certainly. You know, who's building a SaaS company around these platforms might be a little bit different um, because that often involves a bigger investment into one product as opposed to writing a bunch of smaller, you know, one-off uh, feature sets. Um, in, in the Shopify world, uh, my historical experience is that it, it ranges, um, you know, from the, the apps that you're typically running into, what is it looking like today? Is it uh, yeah. you know, small small groups? You know the the, the one two mom and pop kind of a shop. Uh, it is. Operations? I call it two guys in the garage because yeah. I think that's where a lot of it starts. Um, you know, and I've seen it. You know, two guys in college or straight out of college, they want to launch an app. They've chosen to do it on the Shopify app ecosystem. They've got an idea, and honestly, with four apps a day launching on Shopify app ecosystem, three and a half out of four are like two guys in a garage kind of apps. And it could be the, the other kind of in a garage, there, there's a couple of other types, which is uh, an e-commerce store that solved their own problem, essentially, and then turned it into an app. I see that a lot. And an agency that solved the problem for their clients with proprietary tech, and they decided they wanted to launch that tech. Um, as So moving from an agency to a tech company is really, really popular. Um, of course, the e-commerce platforms themselves might launch new tools, but they also are very big at acquiring tools. So... If you strike it big in, you know, the WooCommerce or, or Shopify app ecosystem, maybe uh, Shopify themselves will acquire you, which we've seen in a couple of unique cases. But for well, the most part, cases, they, they might just start competing head on. I mean, we're seeing this from a lot of the, the big companies that they've got investors, they've got they've been acquired, they, they have stockholders, whatever the case may be. Um, you know, Shopify, I think every year rolls out some new category that they're going to in one way or another, compete with their ecosystem on. Um, I, yeah. I think it's becoming more common. They, uh, yeah, Shopify themselves basically rolled out uh, a competitor to MailChimp recently, um, which, you know, is definitely tackling that lower end of the email marketing curve because it's a, it's a really basic drag and, drag and drop email builder, which is essentially what MailChimp was. Uh, it doesn't have the full-fledged functionality of one of their biggest partners, Klaviyo. Which uh, apparently Clavio did 1.8 billion in transactions during Black Friday and Cyber Monday in their gross merchandise, um, like under under their uh, control. And 
Um, and so I don't think Shopify will compete directly with Klaviyo, but with uh, there was a scandal in the market with MailChimp deciding that they weren't going to abide by Shopify's terms of service. So they were pulled from the app store and all the MailChimp customers had to be told to go through a third party tool. Um, and this is one of those risks that occurs to um, when you're using, you know, a, a tool. There's a chance that that tool and your uh, e-commerce platform might get in a tussle. And then all of a sudden, you know, those years you put into that one, that one tool are, are just down the drain. Sure. And I suppose it's a big difference to some extent, at least between an open source platform and, uh, and a SaaS platform that Shopify has that ability to lock down uh, or, you know, lock out someone from their API or, um, you know, to, to have those kinds of, uh, experiences where on an open source platform, you have your own sets of challenges, but typically you have more manifest destiny, you know, as the owner of the website. And, you know, coming back to security, when we're talking about data, uh, I thought it was really interesting that, that you hit on with some of these apps, they're getting a lot of data back from Shopify as a platform or perhaps, you know, other platforms. Uh, I don't think Shopify is alone in that. Yeah. You know, and they're storing this data um, so they've got your customer data, perhaps your order data, different facets thereof, I, I imagine. Um, I haven't really seen, and I, I've looked into it in the past, a lot of standards about, you know, yes, there are expectations when it comes to things like GDPR and certain data protection, but I haven't seen a lot of standards when it comes to where these apps get hosted, um, monitoring of the of the platforms themselves that, that are hosting them, the you know the the hosting infrastructure, mm-hmm. um, you know, <laughs> basically it's almost like saying, yeah, come on to our network. You don't need any antivirus software. You you don't need a machine that that's powerful enough not to slow down uh, these websites. You know, there we're, we're just going to let anybody in. Yeah, there might, there might not even be internal security control measures. So um, just as an example, like two guys in a garage can create an app and they, they're in their backend login. The, it could be, you know, their username is admin and their password is one, two, three, four. And that gives you access to all of their customers. Like yeah. there's, there's nobody double checking something like that for pretty much any app on the market. There's no standard. There's no, there are security measures, I would say in some forms of how the data is stored and there's supposed to be this kind of right to be forgotten, which is mandatory in some cases. I know that it's something along the lines of 30 days after your customer uninstalls the app, you are required to delete all of their data. But I'm quite confident that no one checks whether that actually occurs or not. It's just kind of like a wink, you know, like a, yeah, delete that data. Kind of yeah, thing. it's it's a self-reported. Yeah, uh, exactly. Well, and because you and I both know that a lot of that data winds up commingled into different marketing campaigns and different data sets and systems, and it becomes very hard to, you know, to hit the the back button on all the history that's happened. And yeah, it's also quite valuable. That you, that you might have, and yeah. I'd, I'd rather just keep it if I'm not going to get anything more than a slap in the wrist, or if they just... Say, did you delete that data? We're going to go check. And then I go, okay, I'll delete it. You know, like, like I can delete it at any time, but I'll hold on to it until somebody actually kind of forces my hand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. which is unfortunate that, you know, I suppose that's worst case scenario. Um, but when you're dealing, you know, when this is your livelihood, when this is your business, worst case scenario, so it's worth thinking about. 
uh, understanding where your data might be, how that could potentially impact your customers, your business, your livelihood. Uh, so, yeah. So let me, and to bring it down from an e-commerce merchant standpoint, you know, if you're doing like not that much, you're doing a million, five million, even $10 million a year in revenue. What are like the risks are relatively small as, as a small company, you can, you can kind of take that risk and, and just say like, I need to move fast. I need to grow my customer base. I, and this tool will help me do that. Uh, so the increased risk of security isn't that, that big. But then over time, as you become a larger company, or maybe you've taken on larger investments from private equity or something like that, I've seen how that changes security protocols for this. And all of a sudden, it's, it's, it's a, you know, a month long vetting process where any vendor that you're thinking about adding to your tech stack, you are scrutinizing how they store your data. And you're saying, what, you know, how are you going to delete my data? Where is your data being stored? What are your security protocols? And you have this lengthy enterprise style sales process in order to vet and, and partner with that vendor. The pro is that you're, it's, it's a lot more secure, but the con is obviously that you are literally spending your own internal resources, time and money in order to just make sure that it's safe, which again, and security is obviously very important, but security is also a little bit like legal, legal security. It's like at the end of the day, you'll, you, there'll always be some risk and we're just trying to mitigate a certain percentage of it without like, you know, increasing our costs exponentially. Um, and so like, and we, we, you know, the risk of ruin is essentially what I'm talking about. If your risk of complete and utter disaster for your company, you know, gets too high, that, that it becomes un, uh, you know, just bad for business, too likely that you'll, some, some hacker will come in and steal all your data, email all your customers, and then you'll lose something, something like that, or steal your Instagram account and start posting spam, like as another example. Um, but like that risk of ruin is directly correlated with how much money you're making and how fast you know, your, your opportunity and the, uh, and the stakeholders involved, like it, like private equity or investment. Yeah. And you know, I don't, th- what you, I often see happen in a growth phase. That's the time when you probably should be sitting down for a deeper risk analysis. And that's probably, you know, the least likely time that you're going to find the time to actually yes. do that. Um, to say, you know, what is my footprint here and um, how is that part of the conversation about what am I adding on to my site and what am I giving access to my site? And, you know, you mentioned earlier, which I'm completely on board with, if this app or extension or, or other module, if this is going to bring value to me, if this is going to bring positive return on investment, I want to grow, then, you know, I, yeah, this, this makes sense um, value-wise to add to the site. Uh, and, and I absolutely, you know, I, I don't mind stacking up uh, <laughs> a variety of, of different technology in order to get there um, and, and lots of categories. Um, we should probably talk a little bit about that yet, but, uh, you know, that, that you can put together to really get more value out of the site itself, better user experience, better uh, basically build a better mousetrap. But yeah. what about support for these? Or do you find that when you do have conflicts, when you do have issues, you know, maybe, you know, there are <laughs> failover points where something's not playing nicely with an API, maybe there's too much data flow or a system is overwhelmed, um, any number of issues that do you find that you, you get a lot of love out of these different companies? Is there a way to tell where you might have the best customer experience as a merchant? 
purchasing or you know or signing it, on for one of these uh, yeah. these apps or it can, it can be tough because you know even if the pricing page says that at the enterprise plan you'll get an account manager it doesn't mean that an account manager is going to be helpful uh, it doesn't mean that you're going to be able to get stuff done with them and it doesn't mean that their software isn't clunky right like you know it's, if if the software can be a pain in the butt just for some reason infusionsoft comes to mind back uh, like 5 years ago infusionsoft was just a pain uh, and, it was heavy. Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I was on, I was with their customer success reps like every single day, just trying to figure out a different thing, get a different API working. It would just break all the time, right? And there's going to be that type of technology where you really are partnered. You're working hand in hand, almost like they're an agency. You're your tech partner because they're going to help you set these things up. And and so you um, in your vetting process, you need to be clear about that. And it starts with your own needs analysis. Do I have the internal resources to execute on this on my own? Do I understand the technology that I'm implementing? So if I've never, if, if we don't have a head of marketing and we're implementing a CRM and no one here has ever used a CRM before, then we're going to, you know, probably have a hard time with it and, and could even ultimately fail. But if our head of marketing is a HubSpot guru and knows everything about how the API works themselves or can work closely with the in-house tech, you know, CTO, then you're you're in a good spot to not need handholding. This is just like one random example, right? So, um, so you, you think about like what your resources look like internally, and how much are you going to rely on that tech partner? Um, other things, you know, come down to the nature of the tool. Some tools, it's like you know, one line of code installed on your site. That's all you need, and that's all that it really requires. And then you go into their own backend to create campaigns or whatever it is. Other tools uh, require like you know constant tweaking of different data points, full integration in your inventory management solution in 3PL, uh, deep uh, integrations into your checkout process and, and checkout pages to make sure those, uh, to, to adjust those. And, um, and you can tell just by the nature of the invasiveness uh, how important it will be to have somebody on call 24-7 because if that checkout page stops working, like you lose money immediately. You know, and so those are the kinds of um, levels of severity you might think of when, when trying to figure out uh, yeah. how important support is to you. I guess if, if your customers can't use this special tracking link for the order that they've already placed, yeah, that's a pain. And yeah, it's not necessarily a good customer experience, but at least you got their money already, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. If and they can't get through the checkout, you're really in trouble. Um, that, that's priority one. Yeah, and I'll give you a little, a little, um, a little bonus on that. The irony is, is that if the tracking link doesn't work and they email customer service and your customer service team does a great job handling that ticket, they'll actually be more likely to buy from you than if the tracking link just worked and they didn't have to email your customer service. <laughs> They'd be built a relationship that you otherwise wouldn't have had. Yeah, I don't recommend uh, purposefully doing that, but technically it's been proven that um, minor customer service issues that are resolved with, with five out of five star ratings uh, let lead to better purchases over no problems. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it makes sense. It's logical, so I can't argue with the. Uh, you know, it, with, I, I don't think it's logical. Data. I think people are illogical, and <laughs> that's why it makes sense. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I don't know. To me, if, when I, if I buy something from a site and you know it just arrives and I never deal with them and I don't really have any relationship with them, you know, it, it was uh, it was a commodity experience. That's when true. you bring the human element in, I, I could see where, you know, you, you feel like you, that you build trust, you build rapport. There's something more there. there. That's so another note to 
instead of having a, a minor customer service issue, just contact your customers afterwards. And I've actually seen people call their customers, call every one of their customers after the product arrived and ask them how the experience was. That is a way better way to, to do it than, uh, than the minor customer service issue. I like that. Um, so, you know, you're picking these companies, you're picking, you know, from a mix. Sometimes it's hard to tell because it's the internet. You don't always know whether uh, you're, you're getting technology from the your two guys in a garage or two gals or whatever it may be. And or if, um, you know, if, if you're dealing with a more reputable company, um, these are all challenges. Do you run into a lot of these companies offering some kind of a, a money back guarantee? I know that it's popular um, with, with the uh, Magento extensions that a lot of the, the extension developers, um, they offer it because if the thing's a dud for you, if you've got major conflicts and you don't want to move forward, um, you know, they'll put a, in essence that they'll credit you back. They'll do something for you. I know in the app world, what's, what I've historically run into is more likely a free trial to see does it work well with your site? Does it do what you were hoping it would do? Yeah, and I think all of the um, on the SaaS side, deciding what to offer, you know, the customer is um, it, it's a it, it's a spectrum of problems. If you don't give a free trial, then it's harder to get new customers or or money back guarantee. If you do give it, you might get more customers than you really need, and then have a high drop off point there. But um, so you might even have some abuse and, and some cost associated with it, especially if you have heavy onboarding, right? So you spent all this time with customer success, getting them up and running only for them to, to bail on you. And that, that ends up being a, like a cost of it sold essentially from a SaaS um, standpoint. Um, and, and so the, I think the right thing to do or to always have is you want to get people to value a, as fast as possible. So as a SaaS app, you should be willing to give them time to figure out what that core value looks like. And it is between, I would say, seven and 30 days is usually what it takes. In a larger enterprise tool that's clunky to install is going to take like a month in setup time. You're not, you maybe then you have a money back guarantee or you don't have anything. And, yeah. it, and you have yeah, to. Li make likely you have got nothing because you're paying for some kind of a, a lengthy setup or implementation. So you're paying for real labor that. There's no backtracking on you. <laughs> you better have done your homework before you signed on. And then, typically speaking, those companies do. They have, you know, they have internal resources that vet these things to a pretty good degree before they sign on. Yeah, and and that's the that's the cost, and that cost is on. Um, it, it really is on both sides. It looks like it's on the merchant side, let's say, but it's um, it's the SaaS tool that's actually losing customers by making it so clunky. Of, of a, a process to use their tool. And it's not a bad thing. I'm saying clunky, but it, it's not, a, I don't mean it as a bad word. Some tools are supposed to be clunky and complicated to install and then ultra valuable on the back end. Um, and other tools are supposed to be one click installs that magically make you money um, and magically. Uh, but like, and then there's, you know, everywhere in between. Um, the, at the end of the day, I, I, I like to think that you know mo most tools are giving us enough information to make a pretty good decision even before we trial. Uh, so the trial or the money back guarantee is becoming more of a, unnecessary, a little bit more of an illusion. And instead, we are able to spend enough time to get a strong understanding of the value proposition. That being said, 
human nature, which we've already touched on. People kind of buy things in knee-jerk reactions. And I think that's where um, we have a little bit of a gray area. So my recommendation to anybody listening is to take your time, even with the most simple of tool installs or, or decisions, um, widen your options when you can. So if you're just looking at, should I implement this tool or nothing? You can say, okay, well, what are alternatives to this? Or is there even a bigger problem than this problem that I should solve first? And then of course, think about like the resources in the company and how the execution is going to go behind the tool. Who's going to maintain this tool or report on it? How are our monthly reports going to change from it? Yada, yada, yada. So I kind of, kind of go down that, that rabbit hole of really thinking through any implementation and then your trial period or money back guarantee uh, won't really mean too much. And do ratings and reviews play a big role in choosing these? Um, you know, I, sometimes it's hard because some of the best tech, it's new. <laughs> there, there's not a lot of history on it yet. Um, obviously, if something has hundreds of users giving it five stars, you you want to hope that, that there's a reason for that, at least if the, the platform that the review's on uh, is reputable, if, if you feel like you can trust it. Um, how have you looked at that? Is that a major part of how you decide what, what's worth even looking at in the first place? Yeah, I mean, if you, if you know anything about Amazon, there's a whole marketplace for fake reviews on, you can go buy fake reviews on your Amazon product. So if, you, if you're a merchant today, you're probably thinking, well, if I can buy fake reviews for my product, then probably this SaaS app can buy fake reviews for their product. So, and that's that's one of many reasons why I don't usually look at reviews and ratings all too much. I look at personal recommendations from people that I can know and trust. So more a closer set of reviews and, and feedback. Um, the um, There are also ways that apps can increase their five-star reviews and decrease their one-star reviews just by being good at essentially marketing. Um, so as an example, actually this tool here, Privy, in their onboarding process, it's quite brilliant. It's like step one, do this, step two, do that, step three, give us a review, right? And so when you, if you don't give them a review, there's just this annoying notification in your dashboard every time you log in. So they actually are one of the high, most reviewed products in the Shopify app ecosystem. And they, while they're a very large company and one of the most prevalent, there are other apps that have equal number of customers and like, you know, one-tenth the reviews and, and so forth. So you can... Yeah. And I, I hats off to Privy. I think it's a, yeah. I think uh, I think I'm going to send Ben an email and tell him you know way to go. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, exactly. We're going to have to start doing that at JetRails. It's our poor it's a brilliant like yeah little growth hack that helps you get app reviews, but it also leads to the convolution of the value of a review or your overall star rating and so forth. On the flip side, some tools are super enterprise heavy, right? So they might only get a hundred customers a year, hundred new customers a year but they're doing hundreds of millions of revenue and they're very reputable, right? So for those hundred customers. And then the thing is, they, it's it might be really hard to get reviews from their customers just based on the nature of the tool. And then one customer gets pissed off about one random thing or they stopped using the tool. So it stopped working for them, but really they stopped working on it. And then they give the one-star review and that skews you know, a, a large rating set. So yeah, it's, it's really, you can't just look at those things at face value. Um, I do think that looking at the total number of reviews helps give you an idea of the size of company, but you kind of need to, in your head, multiply that by the size of the, the, the monthly recurring fee. So if it's a $5 product and there's 10,000 reviews, okay, 
Uh, that's about the equivalent of if, it, if it's a $10,000 product and there's five reviews, I, I guess. I don't know. Just, yeah, well, and, and ter- there's something to be said for that <laughs> in terms of their revenue and what they can support off of that. And hey, look, you know, it's it's a lot easier to support five customers in most cases than, you know, than, than 10,000 customers. So um, th- there's a give and a take to, you know, to, to what you're getting. I know that, um, you know, f- from the JetRails perspective, you know, we work with, uh, you know, w- with, I'd say, you know, a, a more um, more targeted list of customers because we're dealing with primarily mid-market and enterprise users and whether that's someone on an e-commerce platform like a Magento or WooCommerce or you know Xcard Press to Shop, uh, you know, whatever yeah. it may be, or whether that's uh, the user that is going to be you know the author of an app <laughs> that, that needs that mission critical web hosting behind it, you know we're dealing with a more limited number, and you know these are folks that get asked for reviews a lot, and so you know in many cases we you know we may want to think about the preview model, but, uh, but you know, what we're trying not to overtax either that, you know, we, we do go and ask folks uh, once in a while. Um, but, you know, th- then again, you know, it, it's a never ending, uh, you know, challenge. Um, that You're you, in the you, most challenging position of all, because as infrastructure, you, if you work well, that's good. If you don't work, I hate you. So there's no like over the top moment where I really feel like giving you a five star review, but there are so many over the top moments where I definitely want to give you a one star review. So I would expect it. I would say that, yeah, the, the hosting industry, I mean, it's to a lot of the hosting industry, I equate to dealing with your cable company and, you know, there's not a ton of love there for your internet internet provider. You know, your internet goes down. I mean, that's basically what we're talking about. You're losing um, infrastructure, you know, a lot, a lot of people. Send a, a lot of uh, you know Christmas gifts to the local meter reader from from their electric company, right? But you know, yeah. but this is something you need. JetRails because we're more of that that high touch, you know, premium white glove service provider. We do get a lot of those five star reviews. It's what we're there for. That if we're not doing that, then we're not fulfilling our mission. That we've got dedicated account managers, and we get to know our customers better, and we're providing that that managed and maintained and monitored solution. Yeah. So don't different. go. Yeah. Yeah. Don't no, no. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Probably not going to quite align with it, but on average, that's what we find. And, you know, it's funny that, but that impacts the overall ecosystem because that's what users expect out of web hosting. They assume that it's kind of like cable companies that they're all going to give you a pretty similar experience. You're stuck with whoever ran cables down your block and, um, you know, and, and you're one of many and, uh, you're not going to see a lot of love for us. You know, we spend time helping our, our clients speed up their sites and, um, you know, and, and uh, improve their scalability so that they stay up nicely during their, their heaviest traffic. And it's different um, than the set it and forget it model or the, you know, self sign up and you, you're just going to, uh, you know, be in the background for waiting for a support ticket, maybe. For us, it, it's a much more proactive. So we do get those those happy moments that we get to uh, we get to look at. But um, going back to to the app ecosystem and, and the extension ecosystem a little bit more, um, you can purchase a lot of these things directly from one of these app stores, or in some cases, you might go through a third party um, and perhaps you know sign up and then get some kind of an integration between them. 
Um, do you find that there is value in typically going to the app store or app marketplace that, that's hosted by the platform itself? It's um, yeah. It's I, I like to go straight to the vendor when possible. A lot of the app ecosystems are trying to take a cut when you go through their marketplace. It's the, literally it's almost the, their referral commission um, because you found them on their marketplace, not on the internet itself, or something like that. And um, you know, it's kind of like which who do I want to support more? The plat the massive platform or the typically smaller you know, little guy tech company, um, the smaller tech company. And, and I'd prefer to give it to them directly uh, if there is such a fee. But even um, even if there's not, it's going to, I mean, you want to see if they're on the app marketplace. I think being listed is important. Uh, it, it does provide... You hope that, that that's, that's meant that they've gone under some vetting in the Magento yeah. marketplace. You're going to have code review and marketing review to make sure that what you're saying and what you're doing jives with their standards. I, I know for other platforms, they've been improving as well, just like Magento has in the last few years that, you know, it used to be the wild west for most of these platforms. Anybody could list just about anything. And um, it, it's definitely gotten a, a little bit better, but I'm with you on, you know, there, there is a moral, I don't know if it's a moral challenge, but, but there's a challenge <laughs> nonetheless, uh, maybe a capitalist challenge about who gets the, the money, because if you're giving 20 or 30% to the app marketplace um, or the, the, app, you know, the app store, you know, extension store, whatever it may be, uh, that's revenue that, you know, that's pretty much the profit in a lot of businesses. Uh, you know, so because they're often high margins to be listed in those, um, you know, it's tough to say what the best model is, because then you get uh, the flip side of it, that these companies are trying to turn a profit and, you know, you, know, you don't want to be one of these unicorns like Uber that <laughs> doesn't know how to get uh, into the black uh, on their books. You know, I, I it's not really solvent. They'll get there, maybe. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, so I think that's part of the challenge. So when you get something that's open source, like a WooCommerce or a Magento, that for most of their users, they're giving away the code for free. Um, I say that with a grain of salt because when something is open source and they're getting code from the community and they're getting basically free marketing from the community, you know, being their cheerleaders and recommending their stuff to, to the world, there's a give and a take, there's an ebb and a flow, but they've got to turn a profit somewhere. So uh, if it's not there, then where, right? You know, um, I, I think for uh, a platform like Shopify that's charging the user already for the platform and charging them for credit card processing yeah. and charge, you know, that, that they're stacking the deck a little bit, that they're making money in pretty much every angle from everyone. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's tough for merchants to figure out how, you know, how these tools eat at their margins. And I mean, we're going back a little bit, but to, to think about like, you know, how, how much of your entire revenue should be spent on, on tech spend. Uh, you know, the smaller you are, the higher actually the percentage um, should be. So if I was, I was saying it, like I'd say we started about 5% of revenue is tech spend. And as we go maybe into the 5, 10 million, it goes down four or three. And, and then somewhere around 1% of overall revenue should be considered like spent on, I would say, technology tools and vendors. Now, it could be that you are, um, it's spent on in-house technology 
and it's higher than that. It depends on the on the exact business. Like some businesses are just a little more tech centric, and they have you know a CTO and a DevOps and like four other people. Others, it, there's no there's no tech team at all. In those cases, you know that's kind of the the trend of what I'm thinking for for tech apps. There's supposed to be a smaller percentage of overall revenue as time goes down. Um, yeah. And then when we when we think about the the marketplaces and and how to choose where to purchase it, um, yeah, I, I, I my personal preference is uh, to look at the marketplace as a place uh, a place of validation, but then go to the company's website and install or book a demo or something like that from there. And you know, I based on my history in the industry, I always do love to pull things back to brick and mortar. And you know, when you're operating a store, multiple stores. You know, you want to add something new in there. You you want to do something. When you think about your overhead of a physical store in rent, in uh, in uh, you know, in human uh, beings, you know, you you've got store clerks and maintenance people, and you know, folks that are keeping it clean and orderly and stocked, and you know, marketed, uh, you know, in terms of displays and other things, and the list goes on, right? You know that. Uh, you know, and you've got physical infrastructure that, you know, let's hope that you've got restrooms for at least your employees, if not, uh, you know, your shoppers and other things. There's a very high percentage that can go into overhead and, and brick and mortar. And so I think in e-commerce, um, there's a big benefit that you can have a much lower percentage going into overall overhead. Um, and I think that sometimes for some business owners, um, that don't think of it that way, that they come at it like, oh, you know, one or two percent of my my overall revenue, that that's that that feels like a hardship when really in in the history of selling things, it's pretty darn good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And of course, like it's different for every business based on kind of the margin, the cost of goods sold, you know, drop shippers with slimmer margins. They're trying to cut back on all these tools. But the like usually the tools are. ROI positive. So you should, you know, they increase revenue, which actually means that percentage wise, you should, you would expect, you know, it's an investment, of course. So maybe in month one and month two and month three, a lot of tools haven't really caught up to performing um, at the speed that they need to be to pay for themselves. But typically a good, a good tool will ramp up, be successful for a, a, you know, a few year period of time. And, and prove its value, um, which lowers its cost on marginal impact of the business, but raises your overall spend, right? So spend, tech spend should pretty much always go up over time. Yeah. And, you know, and when I say in terms of their percentage, um, I, I'll put a caveat in there that I know that there are a number of companies that um, offer billing models where you pay a percentage of your e-commerce revenue. Or something along those lines. I think that for most, that's that's tougher to swallow. Obviously, if you're in a vertical There's like electronics so within margins, that. yeah, that at some point everybody ate away the pie, and that doesn't work. Um, that I, I certainly prefer clear billing where it's a predictable model. You know exactly what to expect, whether that's based upon a usage model and you have predictable usage, or um, w- whether that's a flat rate or what have you. Um, you know, I, I like knowing in advance what it's going to cost and. Um, and I'd say that I, I think part of one of the other challenges is the increase in cost, because once you're a subscriber and you're using something like an email marketing platform, you really don't want to change. I know big commerce, uh, you know, Shopify, all these companies, um, 
you know, that, that are SaaS that, that have some interesting tools, you know, and then you add on all the apps on top, you get to a point where if everybody increases their rates, uh, you know, every year or what have you, that there's an additive effect. So similar to everyone going after a percentage of your revenue, um, everybody taking a rate that's going to go up um, is dangerous. I haven't seen a lot of those rate increases overall, but I I feel like we're getting to that point where we are going to see more of it because once you're ingrained enough with a platform, um, they know they've got you. It it is at that point back to cable companies and internet providers and what have you when that bill goes up $10 a month. Well, are you really going to do anything about it? Pricing as well from the beginning. And so then they go, you know what? Our tool is really valuable. I think we can charge people more, right? Um, Or maybe it's the opposite. It's like, we have to make, you know, 10,000 server calls a minute and we're not making money on these customers. So we can't support them at this, at this tier level. And then of course, inflation and a few other things. But um, most well, of the time, and you, know, and you have now, you know, now I've got a, as a tech company, I have to take care of GDPR and now California just put out new standards. And, you know, and so I, I think it's also fair to say that these companies have their own, um, you know, their own needs, their own requirements, uh, their own challenges. And, you know, I, I see it in the Magento ecosystem. Most often you'll pay one price for an extension if you're using it for the community edition or the open source version uh, of Magento, and you'll pay a different price for the enterprise version for Magento Commerce. It's the exact same thing, right? Yeah. The tool is the same, but the price is different. Yeah, or in Shopify, I imagine that there are probably still some apps that do that. If you're on Shopify Plus, you're going to pay more. Um, But they've got it in the Magento ecosystem. um, They're going to test that extension to work with Magento Enterprise, and they're going to sell it to a much more select small number of users. So they have to recoup some of that somewhere, um, aside from the fact that they know that you've got certain revenue if you're on that version of the platform. So, you know, uh, I always have that debate. Maybe there's a tiny bit of gouging in there, but there's also some reality. There's some hard costs that that these companies do have to take on to work with you and perhaps an enterprise business that They've got to work on different scalability of their product to service your needs. You might need more support and have higher support expectations of them that you can't wait a week for an answer. Yeah. Um, that, that maybe, you know, that's just built into the pricing model. Um, and again, you know, whether you're Magento Enterprise or Shopify Plus or not to make these things all the same, they're not. But uh, maybe, maybe that's a part of the model. And that's something that uh, it's not the end of the world to pay to meet your own needs <laughs> as a business that you have certain revenue. Now you need things to be more toward how jet rails look as things mission critical. Um, that, uh, and that doesn't always mean it's more expensive, but in some cases uh, it means that that dirt cheap item might not be what makes the most sense for your business. Yeah. And I, I think this, this actually, when, when you're choosing tools, I think that there's a few things you need to be like wary of and now, now aware of there's, there's a really amazing shift that I'm looking forward to, I think, over the next five to 10 years in full tr- price transparency and price fairness in SaaS. And so transparency is, of course, showing exactly the best price that anybody could get at any time, um, all the way through to enterprise. So not just saying contact sales and the sales guy's like, I think they'll pay 30000 even though I'm going to charge this other person 20000 which I know is happening to some enterprise companies here in Silicon Valley. It's 
it's a pretty common practice to try and just like get the most out of people, but it ends up leaving them with poor customer experience, high churn, uh, and all, all sorts of other problems associated. Yeah, I, I we've even seen it, which I never thought I'd see in web hosting, where there are companies that they'll put you in a hosting environment without asking you about any of your traffic patterns. Um, that you know, they'll they'll put you on a long term contract, um, sell you up the river for something that doesn't fit your needs. Uh, and you know, it's inter- It's it's one thing if it's self serve and the user takes the wrong thing, needs to upgrade. It's month to month. It's whatever it is. It's another when you might not even be a fit for their needs. Uh, Long contracts that, are very risky with yeah. all tech partners. You need yeah, severe, severe amounts of vetting. Yeah. Um, I hate contracts. You, in, in most cases, like avoid at all costs. Ask, hey, do I need? Do we need a contract? They're gonna give you some BS. And like, well, we're gonna spend all this time onboarding you. We want. We need to recoup the cost of this. And just say, well, I'll do it as long as we don't have to sign a contract. And then see if they say yes. Because like, whatever you could do to avoid the contract, like. I'm very serious about this, but I'm only going to quit if it doesn't work for my business, you know, and if it doesn't work for my business, I don't want to pay for an additional three months, you know, of the product. I think it's, it's absolutely fair to ask a company why that that's required. And so having come out of an agency background for years, there were products, there were services that we would offer month to month. If you wanted us to run your Google AdWords, you know, campaign your Google ads that way. No problem, because most of that money is going to Google. We're not going to force you to give money to Google that you don't want to be giving to them if you've got reason not to be something's not not uh, matching up with your business at the moment. Allowed a product, yeah, yeah. That, uh, but on the, on the flip side, I wouldn't sell you uh, a search engine optimization campaign that way because I couldn't get you results in a month. And if I set your expectation that way that this was some sort of a a month to month with no commitment period, then I haven't managed your expectations and what the deliverables are. Yeah, um, in the and I, I've gone back and forth on those because there are long-term deliverable types of of businesses. But um, at the end of the day, um, I I believe, even though I said earlier that I don't really, but I believe in humans to be relatively logical. And if I say on day one, this is going to take six months to work. And I say in my weekly report, this is still going to take five months and three weeks to you know to work. If I say it enough times, they might actually believe it. Truth yeah. be told, they don't. Uh, I can tell you, I also ran an agency for four years and, and they actually want the results right away, even after they tell you that they're willing to wait. They get, they, they get antsy. They feel like you're not pulling your weight. And then of course, you know, you part ways and three months later, they're killing it. <laughs> and they're like, I don't even know why. And it's like, well, it's all that work we did that we promised would start working in a little while. But. I, I definitely, it wasn't my my average experience, but I definitely dealt with customers with issues like that, where it, it would be something we would tell them, hey, look, you know, you're getting, you know, this off of this marketing campaign that we're running. And we had solid metrics. It was all tracked. We could tell exactly, pinpoint how many leads and what results or how many sales made, um, depending on what type of business we were working for. And they'd say, oh, but our revenue's down. So we're going to stop this campaign. Yeah. We'd say, yeah, but if we weren't running this campaign, your revenue would be down how much more? Like, that doesn't make any sense. That, you know, why would you get, if this campaign is profitable and turning, a, you know, turning good metrics for you, then why wouldn't you just keep running this forever? You know, I'm sorry that you have other channels that are performing really poorly. Um, but sometimes, yeah, that that 
um, decisions aren't always made on pure logic. We, we get punished for other people's mistakes. That's that's yeah. why I guess we're not we're both not in the agency life. Anymore. Yeah, may, uh, maybe uh, that, that's a bigger conversation. But, <laughs> but yeah, it's. Um, uh, I want to get back quickly to pricing fairness because it's a really cool thing that's happening, and I think um, maybe not today, but in the near future, it'll be a, a decision point for a lot of merchants deciding which tool to go with. So some tools are um, some tools basically will charge you, you know, essentially whatever the the preset rate is. So imagine like Clavio is an example again in email marketing. If you go above this many users, you'll automatically get upgraded to the next tier of price. Uh, and there might be some warnings or other things that are that are set off there. Maybe you have to agree to it and they shut down. That happens. But at the end of the day, you move up in a tier. Maybe you weren't prepared for it, didn't notice it. And maybe you haven't even sent an email to your customers in like three months, but you're getting billed monthly for this tool. So this actually happened to me recently with an SMS marketing tool. It, for some reason, the campaigns were turned off by accident. And so for three months, paying the monthly fee at zero use of the tool. And in a price, in a true pricing fairness, what we have uh, technologically now, apps can create an automatic downgrade or shut off of your service when they notice that you're not using it. This is very counterintuitive because the app doesn't make any money that month, which obviously they want to make more money. But at the end of the day, if they believe that they should make money on value, and not on how many days have passed, then they should be, you know, cranking down essentially how much they charge you when no value is being provided and cranking it up when value is being provided. And so I believe in the future we will have a we will have pricing fairness types of tools that'll say up front, and you don't even have to worry about like, you know, if you don't use us, you don't pay for us, we automatically downgrade you, we'll automatically shut you off, and uh, and and you you just pay for as much as you use. Overall, I I'm I like that a lot. I like that that future. That that's a future that makes me happy. Um, the only caveat is if it brings any risk to those companies that a lot of users switch on at the same time around certain seasons or holidays or things, and how they how they predict that to have enough. Whether it's the computing resource or whether it's um, you know wh whether it's customer service or whatever they need in order to deliver to the you know to the to these formerly dormant users that have sprung up. Um, but those users could just as well cancel and come back on. So, um, you know, I, I, overall, I, I, I like the idea. I mean, I, I like what you're saying. I always assume infinite scalability, but of course. Yeah, well, and, and it depends, you know, big or small that, you know, it, it, we see a lot of users, you know, we've got in, in public clouds like AWS, uh, um, where we can auto scale them up as needed. And we don't have a lot of issue with it. Um, we have other users that, you know, they're not at that point. Um, they're going to uh, be better suited in bare metal. And so, you know, we'll spin up what they need when they need it. And for predictable spikes, um, we'll spin up booster servers. Everything that we do is month to month. So we're, <laughs> we're very, very much behind that. Uh, you know, we're not going to ask you for that long-term contract because we want to re-earn your business every month. Um, yeah. We want that to be the relationship that you have. It's, it's no, you're not, we don't want people feeling like they're shackled into a relationship they don't want to be in. But um, it, it really depends on the infrastructure of the company. And I think maybe more so on the support side, if, there, if there's any heavier element there. Um, if it's really just, you know, the, the technology side, the infrastructure side, I think for these companies, especially those that are more established, 
they can be really auto scaling for the most part, um, you know, with certain exceptions, things that they had just didn't imagine to load test for yet, or I mean, even uh, Shopify crashes. So. <laughs> well, yeah, even Shopify crashes, absolutely. And I, I think the other side to it is, um, you know, for some of these these apps, it's not always their system that's the limiter. So, uh, how many API calls <laughs> is their app, uh, you know, hitting uh, Shopify with at once? Yeah, and has that really like, been? It was like Facebook Messenger break all the time from an API standpoint. The users aren't noticing it, but business to business, you lose these API calls. And if you're using a customer service platform to manage responses, all of a sudden your customer service team is like, oh, I don't have any inquiries today, but they're actually just stuck in transit or literally won't get pushed because of a, of a break in the system. So it, it happens all the time. So let, let's pull away from the tech a little bit um, and talk more about, you know, I, as a shop owner, you're going to go to an app store marketplace. You're going to be taking a look at these things. You're going to be checking Google, doing whatever you do to find these, asking around, perhaps in some cases, going to trade shows, learning about different things, uh, conferences, whatever it may be. How do you, how do you effectively compare and contrast some of these features and functionalities? I mean, do you go to guides or demos or screenshots or, you know, I, I, in some categories, like let's say shipping, it's tough. In some cases, a lot of the, the companies are owned by the same parent companies. So, <laughs> you know, whether you're talking like, you know, ShipStation or uh, Easy Ship or, uh, excuse, me, or, or uh, excuse me, Shipping Easy, not Easy okay. Ship. Uh, to, you know, a lot of these that use ship in the name. Yeah, totally you know, Stamps.com, you know, own, owns a bunch of these. Yeah. Uh, the, the, there, there's a, a lot out there that, you know, how does a merchant really figure this out? Uh, it's, that's, you know, the, that's kind of why I, I exist, um, is because it's so complicated that I've made it my full-time job to do tech demos and understand the ecosystem. And I'm honestly, honestly, I'm only like 10% there. I still have another 90% of apps to, to review over the next three years. And of course, as I do that, there'll be another 90% dragged, pushed on top of it. So it's a never ending process. Um, there, there's definitely, um, ways that you want to think about when, when you're comparing tools. First one is, are they, are they actually different? So with so many choices out there, you could like, you know, stand essentially, you know, at, in, in the, at, at the grocery store and you're looking at two different types of ketchup and they're the same, like it, it doesn't actually matter. Right. So why are we spending so much time choosing between them? Um, and that, that can happen in some like 3PL and shipping solutions. Uh, a lot of those things have been commoditized and it'll be almost exactly the same. And so you might be comparing two very similar solutions. Um, so be aware of when that's likely to occur, uh, occur and it'll be in larger um, categories that, are, that have kind of been around for a while. And shipping and 3PLs have been around since before the internet, actually. So um, and so the uh, a few other ways maybe to think about comparison is I mean just getting into the tool, so getting the full demo of it or trial as we talked about. Um, but even before you do that, actually, you need to really list all the things that you're actually going to need. So list your own features. What what do you need this to do actually? Like, is it going to require sending data back to my data warehouse so that it's not siloed? Or maybe it just needs to integrate with my uh, my e-commerce platform, or integrate with a certain CRM, 
that I need to use. So we're looking at those like must have features, of course, and then going into what would be nice to have, which is like, oh, I'd like it to record UTM parameters to custom fields and so that I can map those to, uh, back to my CRM. I've seen that one a lot. People don't do that very well. Or maybe you just wanted to do thousands of custom calls a day so that it's updating every five seconds instead of every five minutes uh, and, and things, things along those, uh, those lines. But the, um, so, so those are some of the ways that I look to compare the tools. Um, we, price is like the last thing that I tend to look at because I think price is, um, value is a differentiator. Price is the, the cost. Uh, but there, we talked about it earlier when the price is marginally impacting the business. So it's 1% of sales or something like that. That versus a tool that is not, uh, directly impacting the margin. Like it's, you know, per, uh, page load, which is definitely different than per, uh, transaction amount, uh, even though they can correlate. Um, and then page loads kind of scale out and you, you can see it like really, you know, get down in cost per page load or something like that then that's like a, a good green flag to move from the percentage of sales to a different value metric. Um, so that's another one that I look at. Um, there's more, but it, yeah. Um, talk to the well, sales. Oh, when, when you're talking to the sales rep, listen for cues from them to understand who their best customers actually are. Um, I remember back to Infusionsoft, ironically, a few years ago, um, I, we bought it when we basically didn't have an email list yet. And they're like, we usually have customers that have, you know, 10,000, 20,000 emails on their email list. And, and I was like, oh yeah, we have zero or we, we had like 400 or something like that. And so that was a sign that maybe we sh were too early to purchase, uh, which we were in, <laughs> in that case. So you're looking for like signs of like, well, we usually work with people who have been a, li a little bit more established than, you know, they have three years of business under them. Not, you know, not a early stage startup with one year of business or something like that. That's a sign that they actually work with enterprise companies, not mid market solutions or, or, you know. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, it's always been the case if they can't list their pricing on their site, they're, and you're a startup, they're probably not targeting you. Yeah. Uh, you know, with rare exception that once in a while there is just something that's core to your business that you really need. Um, I know, for instance, there are apps out there that do things like a product design tools. And if your company is going to be all about customizing some product, you know, think about like designing your own T-shirt and you've created something new and cool that you're going to do with that. Well, yeah, you know, you might need to spend a little bit more per month in that negotiate that rate with someone for this really, you know, strong tool set because it's central to your business. But then you've got other tools within the site that, you know, yeah, you're, you can't afford to pay Boku bucks for something that you're not going to get value out of yet. Um, you're not up there. So yeah, I mean, email marketing, you know, you've got Ronto, List Track, uh, you know, you've got, you know, Emarsis, you know, I've seen some great stuff from, uh, you know, all these, these upmarket, you know, you can go up to Marketo, <laughs> uh, which was uh, acquired by Adobe. Um, <laughs> you know, you've got, uh, you know, dot mailer now dot digital, you know, there, there's all these, uh, I, I'd consider more upmarket where you're probably looking for a MailChimp or, uh, I know, you know, Clavio has had such great growth. Um, you know, someone yeah. that, that might be able to help you at, at more of that earlier stage. That, that, so that reminds me of another thing that you want to look for with like when talking to a sales group or looking on the site, 
Are there features listed that you're going to pay for and not use? If so, there might be a cheaper solution for you someplace else, right? So if you if you need if it's like A/B testing and you've got your own account manager and you know we're going to handhold you through the onboarding process and you don't need all that stuff, but that's the only thing they offer, then you might want to look for a competitor. And then on the flip side, on the integrations front, like we said, we need to know what it's going to integrate with. with. Um, I've heard this so many times. I go, do you integrate with X? And they go, well, we don't, but we have a custom API that anyone can use to integrate with anything. I'm like, oh, great. So I'll just spend, you know, what, $1,500 of my own and then manage the API. And like, what am I paying you for? Like at this point, like, so like I look for... Well, $1,500 might be a really good deal and for oh, a yeah, lot yeah, of exactly. us. So yeah, no, yeah. The, it, it, that, that stuff gets messy. You know, you're hoping that their API is as good as they think it is. Yeah, um, and it, and that it has yeah the, the the actual things that you need it to do like sometimes you you know you can't even uh, you can only post you can't even get and that's like the whole API you're like what like <laughs> and we can't pull any data out of this then what's the point and well and you know and from another side you absolutely want something that is going to match your growth anticipation for the business that you don't want to outgrow it especially things that. You know, when you're dealing with things like reward points, gift cards, things where the data is sticky, um, it's a pain to migrate to another platform for that, that, you know, there isn't always an easy switch over between them, that they're not always, you know, one to one with their data. So it can be a big job to migrate. So often you do want to hope that you're choosing things that you can work with for a long time. You know, once your team is really using something to manage your shipping. Um, do you really want to rip that out? Um, probably not. Um, you can, and, and people do all the time. But in essence, it, it's no longer just an add-on. Um, it's something that you, have, that you have data ingrained with. Maybe your live chat system perhaps might be easier to upgrade over time. You might not be keeping quite as much data in there. So... Yeah, exactly. And it changes your business processes. Pretty much any tool that you're going to add, it's going to change some process in the business. And you mentioned live chat, which is going to affect the entire customer service team. You know, uh, loyalty programs are going to affect how marketers are working or if there's customer success that, you know, it's going to, it's going to affect and impact them. Um, email marketing is obviously affecting the whole marketing team and sometimes parts of operations and parts of customer service. And the list goes on. Shipping is affecting your entire operations department. Um, and so you want to think about yeah, what, what are those changes going to be? Um, the, yeah, the, the lock-in or switching costs are, are going to be down the road. And then how long will this tool work for me? Uh, because even though we, we like to think we'll use it forever and some tools we're going to use for a long period of time, you know, I just try and aim for will this work for the next three years of my business? And then even one year after using it, you should reevaluate your options. People do get, I would say, too stuck to a tool that they've just decided to put up with some of the, um, you know, lack of features or, or, or functionality that they have been promised but never delivered or what, whatever it is. They, they get uh, caught in their ways. And even if there is a switching cost. The, you know, you have to reassess the value of actually switching. Yeah, there's a lot of complacency out there. And I appreciate the loyalty. Um, mm -hmm. That's a good thing, right? You know, that people want to stick with something and stick it out. And they, they don't want to just be tossing stuff around all the time. You know, that this is core to their business. 
but yeah, I, I do think it's good to to have that. And for me, part of that is uh, a security and performance audit uh, component because you know there is such a thing as as too many apps or add-ons. Um, there there are there is a way we were talking about earlier that you can have conflicts between these. They can impact um, absolutely impact your loading speed. They can you know I- impact your security footprint. They can impact. Um, the chances of you know your site going down at peak times because now you're relying on all these other systems to be able to keep up with uh, with your your traffic and all the other traffic that they're dealing with at peak times. Um, you know, I, I, there's also dev complexity that now your developers need to work around all of these different moving pieces. That um, y- you know, so if there's something that you're not using, if there's something that you're not getting value out of, I mean, I I, I guess it's uh, we're at that time in history where if it's not bringing you joy, <laughs> yeah, joy is different than value, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But in this case, I, I think our metric is value. If it's not really bringing you value, if it's just another thing, um, if it's not, if you can't say that you be- you have a reason to believe that it's impacting your uh, your revenue stream, your conversion rate, your customer success. Uh, customer loyalty, some some metric that you care about, lifetime value. Um, you know, sometimes it's just time to vote them off the island and say goodbye. Not for the ten dollars a month or hundred dollars or thousand um, dollars necessarily. Sometimes because there's a cost, and that's adding whether it's milliseconds or seconds to your site, or, or again, you know, security footprint or whatever else. Um, that there's, there's yeah. With yeah. complexity comes increased risk of, of, of failure. Yeah, and, and increased just overall dev cost um, that every time you want to make a change, there's all this extra code to work around. And um, So you know, in your opinion, have you hit a metric how many apps on average or, or add-ons is too many? Um, I, I see the average number in these, um, in these ecosystems seem to continue to go up every year. Yeah, I think I think the average number of tools that you should be using is continuing to rise. Uh, there is now, of course, the average number of apps just available is continuing to rise, like exponentially. Um, there's uh, the Martech uh, Today blog talks a lot about uh, the, how many apps there are, like fifteen thousand and forty thousand. It's just insane numbers. Um, but the but overall, I. There, there will be at some point um, some consolidation in the industry, and that could lead to being able to use fewer apps that are good at lots of things. It's really tough, though, to balance the, those two competing forces, which is niche and great versus broad, slow, and good, right? Like, and that, that, that's what's always going on here, and that's why the number of tools overall is increasing, because somebody said... I'm just going to focus on social proof on websites. And somebody else was like, I'm just going to focus on uh, the product detail page optimization. Someone else was like, I'm just going to focus on uh, abandoned carts on SMS. And all of these little tiny tools are all valuable. There's nobody that's like, I do all of that extremely well. No one, no one does that right now. But I do believe consolidation is, is coming to the market. Um, I, so- I think that the market's ripe for it. I'm with you there. And I do see some of these companies being acquired. And so, you know, it often takes time for those acquisitions to turn into any sort of this throw around buzz, more buzzwords, right? You know, synergy or 
uh, or, or true merger of, of products and customer bases and things. You know, you, you don't want to take a profitable company or a company that is working toward profitability and railroad some major changes that uh, they, they can throw all that into disarray. Um, but and you know, there's one that we didn't touch on earlier um, in terms of metrics for for making choices. You get these companies that are in different parts of the globe, and most of the customers that I've worked with through the years are, are based in North America. Certainly, you know, Jet Rails and, and other companies I've been involved with have customers around the globe, but majority in, in North America. Um, you know, that that's got to have some impact <laughs> as well um, in in multiple ways. So I, I guess it comes back to you need what's going to make the most sense for your business. Um, in terms of locality, that might impact things you know, when you're dealing with currencies or shipping uh, providers or, or lots of other things. Um, you know, do you see uh, some other sort of maybe maybe they're fringe, maybe they're not, but decision factors that come up like that? Um, I, I would. The, I have two competing thoughts in my brain right now, but at the end of the day, I don't think regionality of the tech tool matters too much um, as compared to just overall performance. Um, it, it could be of a minor concern, but yeah, but, I mean, um, and I suppose if you're with a platform that's uh, that's forcing conformity to GDPR and other standards, that certainly helps. Well, actually, that could be a cost because in the United States, you didn't have to be GDPR compliant. And now you do. And all this, and that, that is essentially uh, just a natural lowering of your email list building, um, which we all know drives, you know, a massive amount of revenue. So, so it could have, it could have been a cost, but, um, but it's, I think in that case like that, you have to make maybe a business ethics case uh, for, for it as well. And a few other things like, do you want to be on the future trend or do you want to be a laggard? Uh, do you want to risk? Uh, compliance breaks because you're not compliant in the U.S., but you accidentally got an email from somebody that's a European citizen. Yada yada yada. So, so that that's one thing that matters. Now, when you were talking about metrics and regionality affects what metrics somebody might care about when they're developing an app because of the way people talk. I know in Silicon Valley we've got all the buzzwords, right? Um, and some people judge. Or, or create a metric that goes into your dashboard. And sometimes you don't understand exactly how that metric is calculated. So it could be two different email service providers can show you open rate, for example. And one's going to show you uh, the total open rate as a percentage, and the other is going to show you the unique open rate. And you look at these, you, sell, you send an email blast using each of them, and you go, well, this one outperformed that one. It's like, well, actually, they're showing you a different metric, and you just didn't realize that you know this company chose like unique and this one chose total and i don't even know in that case which one's right or wrong um and i don't like there, there's nothing right or wrong the, the problem is understanding how the metric is calculated really and, and making sure that you you know that and so especially when it comes to revenue reporting and tracking um everybody's taking credit for as much revenue as they can get almost everybody at least and you really want to understand you know well i look i made you know uh, I made $40,000 last month in abandoned cart recovery emails. It's like, okay, well, they were sent an email and they bought from you, but they never opened it, but you got credit for it. Like, you know, so like, that's a possibility. So you're just Absolutely. getting Absolutely. Or I, I added Apple Pay and, 
you know, a thousand shoppers used it this quarter or something. Yeah. But, you know, are those net new shoppers or would they have yeah. just checked out with something else? That's a great example as well. So you're like really excited that they're checking out with Apple Pay, but uh, but you you don't know if it maybe it confused users and you're you actually net revenue down. Um, yeah. Or maybe yeah. the amount that it increased users is uh, slightly less than the cost of using Apple Pay. Maybe there's a 1% additional cost, uh, you know, using that payment processor. I don't know what it is. At yeah, all. you know, I mean, you, you want to hope that if that's what the users chose, depending on UI, UX, other things going on that, um, that they chose it because they wanted it. And so now at least you gave your customers something that they, they wanted, I mean, enough to choose that over whatever other options were in the checkout. So it, it does give a slight amount of validation to even if it didn't necessarily add to your revenue or profit that, well, at least you're providing a user experience that the people are, are choosing to, to push forward with. And sometimes, you know, in, in today's evolving ecosystem, um, sometimes that's all that you can ask for is that you're keeping up with the times and, you know, and, and you're delivering the experiences that shoppers appreciate. Yeah. And, and other times you don't, you can't even tell if there's an improvement made. When I think about discount codes, I think this is actually one of the hardest things to understand. Um, should I give them a 15% off or a 10% off discount code? Okay. So let's say you, you know, you, you AB test this and the 15% one converts more. Uh, does that, is that better for your business or worse? Like, you know what I mean? Like there's, you actually have to calculate what your profit margin was on the two of them and compare that. And then you have to decide whether you want more customers or more profit. So you, don't, you there's no answer that uh, A-B testing tool could tell you on this. Like you actually have to start from like a complete business decision. Yeah, and I, you know, it's been a while, but I, I knew platform, at least one platform that would run those metrics for you that would keep testing to figure out where the highest conversion rates are versus margins and other things for different coupons and discounts. It was a pretty cool system. But again, you know, I think you've got to be at a pretty good size um, to be able to afford to invest in the, the time and, um, and capital in, into using a system like that, um, that, you know, that, that's not for your startup. Yeah. And so, you know, it, it does get very interesting that, yeah, you know, how, the things that we're judging on, it's, it, this is complex stuff. Um, yeah, and and no, so, nothing's in a shell anymore. They're all interdependent on each other. Yeah. And, and so taking it back to a, maybe a, a point of more simplicity, um, we've now headed into 2020. And, um, you know, we, we've been talking about a lot of the metrics for making choices. Uh, if you were to prognosticate a little bit, what would some of the app categories be that, that you think in 2020 merchants should really be considering either, you know, looking if at if what they have is what they really should have, or just, you know, if they should be using something from that category altogether, if they were looking at one of these app stores and marketplaces? Yeah, definitely. The first one that I'm really bullish on is live chat. Um, we've seen adaptation of live chat increase. Well, we've seen in the, uh, chat tools, usage of chat tools on websites increase, but the actual live chat where you're doing real-time communication, which means under 90 second response times to customers who are act actively browsing your website and interested in purchasing. 
I call this sales, right? Because yeah. it's it's actually not customer service anymore. You're trying to you're you're a you're a shopper assistant in a store. Yeah. Well, it, it, if this was a brick and mortar store and you had people walking the aisles looking at expensive items, you know, starting to put a couple of things in in their cart and like then meander as if maybe they're gonna leave the store. You're abs- if, if one of your sales clerks, if one of your employees and going up to them and trying to help them see if they have questions, take care of them, then, you know, you're that person eventually. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, 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 that's terrible. Them because it's a it's not brick and mortar. But so so having that conversation, I think, is really important, um, you know, via the website. And I'm actually uh, currently looking into a tool called Scout, which helps you call the customer if they put something in their cart and don't convert, you can call them to ask them what they, you know, what what might be the problem, um, how interested are they, et cetera, and convert with essentially an outbound sales call. They opted in to receive the call, but you're calling them as opposed to waiting for them to contact you. Proactive, um, not reactive. Yeah. And I think that I think that things like that could be, you know, game changers over the yeah, next you know, there's a lot of remarketing that's going on these days and that's more passive, you know, Hey, you came to the site. So we're going to show you banners or, um, other maybe abandoned browse emails that some of the platforms can support. Um, it, sometimes it just depends on how much data you've got. You know, if you have an email address, if you have certain, certain things already, um, that's why remarketing usually works because if they're not blocking <laughs> the ads and, um, you know, in essence, you've got a pretty good shot at, at being able to serve them up banners and remind them to come back and complete the checkout. Um, I, I do think that the chat's real great. I know, um, you know, one of the things that, that I would run into in, in previous years, uh, what, what, so there are these different platforms, even for more traditional live chat, where maybe you can use video um, and have more of that one-on-one. You're paying somebody to sit in front of a keyboard Beauty um, consultations, I think, will be huge for that. So the beauty is yeah, live yeah, beauty ab- consultation absolutely. with beauty expert. There are others where, you know, instead of just having a chat window, the chat operator can really take over the, the checkout, in essence, um, you know, help to add items to the cart that they think that the user might be interested in or want to see, drive the user to other pages more easily. And so have more of that consultative impact. It's like you've got a personal shopper with you. Um, one that I thought w- was really cool, there's one called Pronto, um, P-R-O-O-N-T-O, if I remember correctly. Um, you know, I, I remember recommending those, those folks yeah. from time to time. And what was cool about it was that they had a network of chat operators. Because one of the things that I'd frequently run into with merchants is that they'd say, we don't have any um, a- anybody to man the battle stations. And live chat's only as good as the people you put in front of it. Um, to be able to act as your customer service or sales representatives. And so you would actually be able to choose people from their network, train them, um, get them on, on board as members of, of your team remotely. And you could get folks in, in, you know, in the States, North America or around the globe. Um, and I thought that was a really cool idea of being able to have that supplemental workforce and, you know, treat it like the business that you want it to be. So maybe your staff is there more Monday to Friday, nine to five, but there's a lot of sales opportunity in the evening hours. Well, you can supplement your workforce. So lots of good tech out there that, um, you know, above and beyond just the, the passive having a, you know, do you, you know, having a something at the bottom of, of the screen that offers if they want a live chat, being able to proactively 
reach out based upon what they're doing on the site and um, and really help them out just like you would in a store. I think we're, it's it's kind of about unautomating. I think we maybe maybe business and marketing went too far into automation from about 2000 to about 2020. Yeah. And we're, you know, and of course, as the internet grew, we lost the human connection. And so the brands that are making the human connection are going to succeed the best. And sometimes it's just simple things. And certainly you can scale a customer service team. You can scale a sales team. You could, you know, it's not unscalable. It's just not quote, you know, automated. It's not just the, the machine. There's people involved. Yeah. And, you know, I like chatbots for certain things. If I want to check an order status or something, that might do the job just fine. If I have real questions, I can't stand them. <laughs> you know, obviously, they're getting better over time. It's, uh, it, you know, it's a tech process. But um, I still prefer the human element. And I think that that's where companies win, when compared with the Walmarts and Amazons of the world is by offering uh, above par customer experiences. Yeah, Here, here's a here's a mind blower for the future, because like you said, AI is not quite there yet, but it will be soon. We'll all have AI in our hand and we'll and it'll be our own life personal shopper. And that AI will reach out to your website. It'll go into the live chat and start asking questions. And your AI on the other end will answer its questions. So two AI chatbots will talk to each other and interface. And then your personally owned AI will tell back to you the information you wanted to hear. Think and then Skynet that. takes over. Yes, and yeah. Uh, yeah, we, we all wind up in the matrix. Yeah, it's. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm not kidding. That's. I mean, that's about ten years. <laughs> oh, I I can see it now. I've already seen some of the AI talking to other. It 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 gets pretty, uh, pretty interesting, pretty fast. But. Yeah, for sure. Um, other tools or categories, let's say. So live chat is kind of maybe an emerging channel, and other ones that people are probably also familiar with. SMS, I would say, is mandatory now. So if no one's, you know, if you don't have an SMS tool, you you need to be uh, SMS messaging. Abandon people, cards for SMS. Yeah, I mean, p- people read their their texts. That's all yeah. it really comes down to. We knew that a few years ago that people were much more likely to open a text and you know and, and act and on still it. Still not doing it. Uh, yeah, because there's there's some cost to it. So if you have extremely thin margin business, it might not work. But at the end of the day increase your margins so that it works like figure it out because it's it's absolutely worth it it works in nearly 100 percent of cases messenger marketing is another channel similar or whatsapp we could also include in there but not as mandatory if it depends on you know if you're a very social brand i would say it's it's more likely to uh come into play uh whatsapp is very common internationally where as compared to in the us but that doesn't mean it wouldn't work in the us either They've recently opened up their API. So a lot of cool things are happening with how businesses can interact through WhatsApp. So it's, it's kind of um, an underutilized channel. Messenger has been there for a while, but they're actually constricting uh, their API and the value of the tool and making it more of a pay-to-play model, similar to how they uh, Facebook did the, um, the shrink on your business page reach about five years ago. Absolutely. Years ago. Yeah. Uh, so the same thing's kind of happening in Messenger now which makes me a little less bullish on there, but it's still profitable. So you should do it. And, well, and, and that's all it comes back to, you know, right back to value that, you know, just because I don't use WhatsApp heavily um, doesn't mean that using some of the, these tools and, you know, taking ventures of some of these opportunities as a business owner can't bring on another profitable channel for you or, or campaign or, you know, or, or tools. So 
You don't need everybody to use it for it to be a win for you. It does Absolutely. add a layer of complexity and a little bit of cost. So you have to figure out, you know, the balance of all of those things. But, you know, if you get 10% of your customers to use it and it increases their conversion rate by 15%, that's still a big, you know, that's a boost to business. 15%, 10% is 1.5% revenue or whatever. I don't know if I did the math right, but like I would take that. <laughs> yeah, 1.5% revenue boost. You know, and and it's um yeah. So as long as you can you can figure out the level of complexity, and then just don't underestimate how many channels people want to communicate to you on. Because at the end of the day, there's actually ancillary value in that. Um, you need to be on everybody's preferred channel so that they're happy with you, and then from that they'll refer other people, and you will grow this like true feeling of brand. You know, you'll just be in their minds. A lot more, there'll be negative, less negative comments, feedback, less customer service inquiries. And because you're, you're where they need to be, they're not trying to go to the website, find the support at email address and sending that message, which frustrates them. They're just texting essentially like they're texting their friend and, you know, getting a response from a qualified rep. So. Those are the things. Push notifications was the other one, but push is tricky because it's still it's anonymous users. But we we're seeing conversion rates, so it's it's like um, it, it's still working. Interesting, yeah. So I, what is interesting is that so much of your list it comes down to communication. Um, comes down. Yeah, to- that's my my person communication loyalty and uh, which is like kind of another big one. We need to have loyalty and retention tools and programs. And then payment solutions that are breaking the price down into different steps. And I, I'm naturally a marketing-centric person, so I'm thinking more about the marketing side of the tool stack. But of course, we can we can go into the operations side. Um, just talking about how you know, like a company like ShipBob is offering two-day shipping uh, for their 3PL network. So it's like, okay, like if if Amazon's not the only one offering it now, I can offer it, uh, and Amazon is the standard basically. Um, mm-hmm. like I basically have to offer two day shipping nowadays. So like there, there's certain changes to the operational stack that, you know, are, are going to have to be made for, for companies too. But like, if you don't have this customer journey down, you know, as well as possible, you're not converting and retaining customers. And I don't, I don't even care what the rest of the stack is. <laughs> so, you know, really interesting. Um, uh, it, it's been a pleasure having you on today. Um, any final thoughts for our listeners? Well, for you know, if, if you want to learn more about me or e-commerce tech, you want a free tech stack consultation, uh, reach out to me, Derek at ecommercetech.io, and, and I'm sure we'll we'll share that with people. It's uh, D R R I C at ecommercetech.io. Happy to chat with anybody about yeah all sorts of tech tool decisions uh, problems. Uh, I we can run the gamut. It's just business strategy in general. I love chatting about it. Awesome. And yeah, if anybody's looking to, to get in contact with you, they can ask me. I'll make sure to give all your personal info. They can spam you uh, yeah. as oh, much yeah. as they want. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, well, you know, to our listeners, thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Jet Rails podcast. Um, going back to our, our earlier comments about leaving reviews, you know, which yeah, I know we we don't really want you to. Uh, feel plagued with right but no go leave us some reviews you know apple podcasts and wherever you you're listening today um feel free to subscribe and check us out and we always love hearing from you whether it's through linkedin or facebook or twitter um at jet rails or um directly through the jetrails.com site uh 
you know, <laughs> love hearing from listeners. Uh, we'll have some additional great content coming for you soon. And we're doing some upgrades on, uh, on our uh, podcasting tech stack. So looking forward to a, a really awesome 2020 with you. Happy selling.